I'm Jonathan Mosin and this is episode 106 of Mosin at Large in which we talk more about accessibility overlays and a new way to block them from numerous solutions. Dating blind, rideshare refusals, a lot about braille, clubhouse, technology tips and a lot more. Stay with us. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi Jonathan, it's Tim Minutesfeld. I really missed the normal Mosin at Large experience, but I think you were right in spending the full three hours on Accessibi because it's a really disturbing development. I was impressed by the way you interviewed Michael Hinkson. You hit the nail on the head. And as an eloquent blind person, I stood on the podium more than once to demonstrate my assistive technology to a sighted audience. And if you've ever done that, you know how much influence such a presentation can have. People really feel like, oh, you open up our eyes, figuratively speaking. Now, if a guy like Michael Hinkson, who obviously has the skills to give that type of presentation and who's also playing the 9-11 card, is defending the swindle, and I know it's a strong word, but I think it's appropriate here, the swindle that Accessibi engages in, it's disturbing And I'll leave it at that because we need to stay professional. But I felt really disturbed by some of the statements he made in that interview. Now, as I mentioned before, I work as an accessibility consultant and my clients sometimes ask me about overlays. Not overlays like Accessibi, but things like Read Speaker. That's a button that they put on a website and if you press that button, it reads the text on the website. Or should they put a high contrast or a large font button on their website? And my answer is no. I don't want to compare this sort of functionality to what Accessibility is doing. But still, this functionality is going to destabilize the website. It's probably not going to work well on all platforms. And if you build the website according to standards, it should not be necessary. And I typically use the analogy that the website builder is building a highway. And it's his responsibility to build the highway according to standards. In the case of a website, WCAG. But the responsibility of the end user of the highway is to ensure that he has a suitable car for driving on that highway, which he knows how to operate. And... If somebody doesn't have a suitable car or can't drive in it, you can build the greatest possible highway, but it's not going to be a success story. Although I see the point that overlays like read speaker or high contrast functionality may have value for users who are not so familiar with their web browser, I think that increasingly the web browsers and other user agent technology is offering great solutions for achieving high contrast or for reading a website that conforms to standards. Now even screen readers are increasingly built in. So I think that it's better to just leave the responsibility for such things with the user agent developers and that website builders focus their limited time and budget on ensuring that their website is accessible and meets the standards. And that can be a challenge. I recently advised the developers of a government website uh, offering access to legislation, 
and they used the HTML deletion and insertion tags to mark changes in the legal text. To demonstrate what deletion and insertion tags do, here's a little internal memo as it is read by NVDA. Heading level one revised memo from the CEO. We will deleted purchase inserted download 10,000 deleted dollar 2,000 licenses inserted free copies of deleted jewels for Windows inserted non-visual desktop inserted access open parent NVDA close parent comma. Because jewels deleted reads our intranet so well inserted does not read the HTML del and ins tags we inserted use on our intranet dot. Jules does not read deletion and insertion text. You can only indirectly learn that they are there because the deletion and insertion text in the web browser also changes the font attributes. So you can ask for the font attributes or enable them on your braille display, but you have to explicitly enable font attributes. Otherwise you will never know about the presence of the deletion or insertion text. I reported this to Freedom Scientific and Freedom Scientific introduced support for deletion and insertion tags in one build of JAWS, just like NVDA does, but then removed it after users complained that the deletion and insertion tags was causing information overload, which may be because they were used inappropriately on some websites, etc. Rather than making it configurable, Freedom Scientific chose to remove the support for the deletion and insertion tags. So now the question is will we have to insert in our website screen reader only text deleted inserted instead of the tags? No. If Freedom Scientific deliberately chooses not to follow the standard by not reading the deletion and insertion tags, maybe they have good reasons for it, but it's their problem and the problem of their users. If I got questions about this now, I would tell people that either they should switch to NVDA because NVDA does follow this standard or they can indirectly read the deletion and insertion text using attributes. But it's not our task to work around the deliberate choice that Freedom Scientific made not to read those texts. It's not our responsibility. We build the highway, they build the car. And the final point, I think there are many accessibility consultants, at least in the Netherlands, who create an atmosphere like if not all your videos are 100% subtitled and audio described, we label your website as inaccessible, you don't get our fancy certificate, and we'll make sure that first the hell is sued out of you and then we send you to hell to burn for all eternity. And instilling such fear is really great for their business case because then they can sell a lot of hours to advise how to solve every last problem. Now, don't get me wrong, I stand behind WCAG. It's a great standard and it leads everything I do in this area. But when Michael Hinkson is saying that what matters is the ultimate user experience rather than the exact conformance to the standard, he is absolutely right. Of course, we have to insist on following standards. No compromises there, but there are different ways of telling people that. And if we are too obsessive or put it in a negative manner towards developers, then they will just abandon us in the end because we have such high demands and we cost so much money that they can't afford us. And if that happens, the stage is open for swindlers who will claim that they can solve the problem for a small fee. So I think legislation can be a good thing, but it's really important that we don't instill fear or give developers the feeling, ah, oh, we 
never achieve this because it's so difficult. In my advisory, I follow the standards, but I also understand that accessibility is a process. Developers are doing the best they can, but they're very busy people who need to take care of many things. And it's really important that in our advisory, we are constructive and we focus on getting those problems solved that actually prevent people from getting the job done. I think being constructive and sometimes a bit liberal understanding also the developer perspective works way better and will get way more websites accessible much sooner. Julie McCullough says the farther this discussion has gone, the more serious I realize it is. Is the purpose of Accessibility to help make websites accessible to people with disabilities or to help marketers to find a way to feel that they are complying with accessibility guidelines? They may not have contacted or wanted to hear from people with disabilities because their purpose might really be to help companies to think that they're being compliant and that they will be protected from litigation by their supposed compliance. Bless Michael Hingson, I think his heart is in the right place. I think he sincerely wants to help this company to make websites accessible to people who are blind or who have other disabilities. I hope he can, and that he doesn't get burned by finding out that this company is only interested in making money at the expense of both marketers and people with disabilities. I sincerely hope that Michael can help this company to change some of their ways and that he won't find he's being used. Michael Bullis says a few copy and pastes from the Accessibility main page show their market share. Their market share is selling protection. Quote, Effortless, a single line of code for 24-7 automated compliance. Protect your business from lawsuits. Keep safe from lawsuits. Accessibility is trusted to protect over 100,000 websites worldwide. How do we protect you from litigation? Unquote. The reason Accessibility may be less than responsive is that we, blind people, aren't paying the bills. The focus is on the business, not the end user. They are promising this to the end user, the business, as a complete legal protection and accessibility solution. This quote, again from their front page, is significant. Quote, Thanks to AI, the dream of an accessible web is finally attainable. Unquote. No, it's not. It may be at some point in the future, but for now, AI is still a hoped-for outcome, not a current reality. I personally believe AI will ultimately be a huge part of web access, driving, and hundreds of other things. I think the outcome for Accessibility is up for grabs. Can they restructure their focus to be a partner with us? I don't know, but thanks for a wonderful show. Robert Kinjet writes, Hi Jonathan, thank you for covering this topic. I'm an expert witness for many law firms in the United States and internationally. My many encounters with Accessibility have caused me to strongly dislike them and similar overlays, but not because it doesn't work, which it doesn't, Instead, I'd like to illustrate why I dislike their philosophy. To start off, I'm an anti-capitalist. Their approach to accessibility stinks heavily of consolidated accessibility. I'm against this for a number of reasons. Even though we value capitalism more than education here in America, I feel that embedding accessible design 
into educational courses will grow inclusive design far greater than a capitalist tech company hoping everybody will be so dependent on them that the client cannot leave because education wasn't provided. If people really want to improve accessibility, the solution needs to be baked into CMS platforms and web design tools and services. I don't think capitalism can solve the accessibility problem. Money will never make a website accessible. Community efforts may seem slower, but community strength is better than company dependence and consolidation. Hey, Jonathan, it's Zach here, and I'm just sending some thoughts in on accessibility. I just want to quickly start out by saying that I had been sort of hearing uh, murmurings of accessibility on Twitter for maybe a month or so. I can't really remember when it started, but I sort of thought at the time, this isn't really a huge deal. I'd encountered some uh, layers like this before. I don't know if they were accessibility necessarily. I think one of them was audio-wise. I think Wired may have had one at some point, or was it Gizmodo? I'm not totally sure. Either of those could be wrong, but I know on some news sites for sure I've, I've seen this. And I kind of thought at the time, okay, you know, this isn't like a huge issue. This is not really something that people need to get this upset about. But listening to this podcast, and I, I did listen to uh, most of the live stream as well, really opened me up to the sort of the harm that this this company and others like it are 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 doing to uh, especially the, the blind community. So I wanted to kind of give some thoughts. Their disregard for the experience of professionals in this field who have been doing this for a very long time really, really uh, makes me angry. Chansey and Sam and, you know, uh, Adrian as well, it seems, um, have done a lot in this area and definitely know what they're talking about when it comes to proper formatting and, you know, presenting tables properly and, and lists and all that kind of stuff that was kind of touched on in the podcast. And accessibility just essentially saying, well, screw you, you know, we don't really need to listen to what you have to say because we have a solution that we know works when it clearly doesn't is just, I don't, I don't understand how you can have this in 2021, you know, um, these people, you know, Chansey and, you know, everyone else have been in this field for a very, very long time. They have a lot of experience. Some of them use screen readers on a daily basis. They know what they want and they know how to present content properly. And I'm not saying that they speak for everyone by any means, but at least a baseline, they know how this stuff works. And I just don't understand why Accessibility thinks that it's okay to essentially step all over that and undo like years and years of progress in this space. So further to that, uh, your interview with Hingson was very um, informative in terms of really kind of different sides of this spectrum. It, it almost reminded me of sort of Republican versus Democrat in a way. I, I want to kind of just touch on Michael's uh, sort of early comments in, in the interview when it came to his own website. And ha uh, he had to use Namecheap and he encountered accessibility on there and then was... Uh, you know, upgrading his site. Um, he mentioned that he hired a coder who was 
not really aware of accessibility. I don't know if he was the one who hired it. I don't know if he has a team working on this. But regardless, he should really know better, um, quite frankly. I'm not here to personally attack anybody or anything like that. But in this instance, he really should know better. He's been in this space for a very long time. I've spoken to him at least once. And he seems, you know, to be relatively knowledgeable on screen readers and accessibility. So the fact that he would just hire somebody who didn't know about accessibility yet pay them anyway and choose to have them develop his site and then go in and essentially use a Band-Aid to patch up those accessibility mistakes that should have been fixed from the beginning, I, I don't really get how you do that. You know, I don't understand how that works, um, especially if you're blind. You know, what logic do you have to come to in order to reach a decision like that? You know, how do you justify paying money to somebody who clearly does not know about accessibility and not even training them or educating them or giving them resources and saying, hey, this is how you do it, but just letting them do the work anyway and, and presumably paying them money uh, and then saying, okay. They didn't really do a good job, whatever. I'm going to blame it on them, not on myself for hiring them in the first place, and then patch up those holes with a product that really does not do a good job. Uh, Michael did also point out that Adrian had no right to speak on behalf of blind people, but he, I don't believe he was speaking on behalf of blind people. He was simply saying that this service is not fit for purpose, and he backed that up with a lot of technical facts and I, it wasn't really, it didn't seem like it was more an opinion piece. It seemed more like it was, uh, here's the evidence, let me present this to you, and you decide, kind of. And I will, I, he gave his opinion, but he also presented a lot of evidence and videos of him using JAWS to try and navigate the site. And, you know, he seems to know what he's talking about in this space. So I absolutely think that he had every right to make that blog post, and I, I do agree with a lot of what he said. He did, uh, Michael mentioned testing and that sighted people get tested in terms of features like on Facebook and Twitter, for example, they will see new settings and features and whatnot. And blind people should have the same thing applied to them. I absolutely disagree with that, especially on this scale. Um, if you are essentially breaking websites and calling this a quote unquote test, I don't see how that's a good thing. You are disrupting professionals' lives. Uh, people have jobs to do. And when the technology does not work the way that, is, that it is intended to, and they did not specifically enroll in something like a beta where, you know, they are made aware that things could break, things should not break in this capacity. Yes, everything has bugs, but this is these are not bugs. These are deliberate changes that were made without consulting uh, many blind people. I don't really believe excessively when they say, oh, we worked with blind people, because clearly, clearly you haven't. If you've been doing this for three years and you are just now starting to work with a, a select group of people and have not even contacted uh, blindness organizations. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of blindness organizations myself, but they seem to know what they're talking about when it comes to standards and things like that. And I believe they should be involved in something like this, as fundamental as changing the web. Um, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to me. You should not be enrolled in testing without your permission, period, for something like this. Kylie Baloney says, Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for such a thorough review of the accessibility overlay from Accessibility. However, 
There is a larger concern which, for me, has nothing to do with accessibility, as important as that is. Let's say I got together some friends with a large amount of venture capital and set out on a project which I was sure would benefit Māori, that's the indigenous people of New Zealand, by the way, without consulting any iwi, which is the Māori word for tribe, or even speaking with individuals whom I knew. Tangata whenua, that's Māori, would be justified in labelling me racist. Here is a group who claims a positive and helpful motive, but who, until recent complaints made it necessary, couldn't bring themselves to even speak with those they are claiming to help. Furthermore, When people from our community have the temerity to express any sentiment other than abject gratitude, have the gall to play the victim. In my view, this is the worst kind of patronization, meriting neither consideration nor respect. Let's be straight, this is, and always has been, purely a money-making venture at disabled people's expense. For all things Mosin at large, check out the website where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app, and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosen.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. We talked last week on the show about the ability to block these accessibility overlays if you choose to do that via an ad blocker software package or perhaps even at your router level. But Numa Solutions is coming up with an idea to make it even simpler. This is the artist formerly known as Ceratech. And uh, we've got the, the two key people from there, Mike Calvo <laughs> and Matt Campbell. Welcome, guys. Hi, stop. You're terrible. <laughs> what, what happened to Ceratech? What, what, I mean, that's a brand, you know, it's been around a long time. Why'd you change the name like that, Mike? Kind of new vibe, new group of people. Matt is a co-owner now, and we just felt that uh, Numa was a little bit more aligned with where we were going. And basically, the investment folks and I just kind of said, you know, we're done with this. And we packed it away, and everybody went home except for Matt and me. And we stayed on the ship, and we are rebuilding it. I do wonder, when you look at your soup drinker device or your Google Home or whatever, do you think, man, I was ahead of the curve. I was thinking about this stuff in 2000. Well, it is scary to me to hear how similar the soup drinker and uh, our previous Freedom Box, how interestingly similar the voices are, although the soup drinker does it much more eloquently than we used to. But yeah, I mean, it's. I'm glad somebody did it. She doesn't say, okay, Jonathan, what would you like to do now in quite the same way as you had? <laughs> no, the she other. didn't. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's talk about, and welcome, Matt. Uh, Matt, of course, uh, is no stranger to us at Mushroom FM and uh, has helped us out over the years. Let's talk about this uh, solution that you guys have come up with. And I'll let you guys choose which one of you starts us off on this. But why did you decide to dabble in this controversial issue of blocking accessibility overlays? We agree with the predominant opinion that was expressed on on your podcast last week that accessibility overlays are doing much more harm than good. They're not actually solving the problem and they're not actually solving the problem of web accessibility and in telling businesses that they are solving the problem while making it worse, they're hindering actual improvements to the accessibility of websites because businesses think that they can just 
you know, drop in a line of code and they're done, when in fact that's not the case. And so when I was listening to the podcast last week, I heard the email from Stephen Clower and I heard about Accessibility Gone and I thought, well, that's nice, but it requires the user to be fairly tech savvy in order to do it. And so why don't we develop a little browser extension that can just do it for the user? And at the same time, I realized we could collect some useful information about the sites with accessibility overlays that are being blocked to help the community do some advocacy to uh, contact these companies and let them know uh, their supposed solution is not actually working. You're calling this accessi bye-bye. How do you get it? Can you get it yet? And then we'll talk a bit about the data collection that you're doing and the privacy safeguards around that. You can visit us at uh, accessibuybuy.org. And the the only reason we, we put a .org behind it is because this is not a long-term project, at least we hope. We hope to send a loud and clear message that we are not pleased as a community. Matt is, uh, in his usual, very customary, diplomatic way, being very nice. I'm not such a nice guy. I'm really pissed at these companies. The way that they've, the way that they, uh, can I say that here? Um, you just and, did. And, <laughs> right? Um, the, the thing to me that, that, that just astonishes me to no end, and Accessibility is the one we've got our community kind of guns aimed at right now, but they're all guilty of creating and making money on us as a community without any involvement by us as a community and then coming back later and expecting grace from a community that they've done nothing but just basically make money millions. I'm not talking about thousands or tens, hundreds, millions of dollars on for the last three years at minimum. And it just, it was disgusting to me. And for this community to decide, I mean, everybody can do what they want, but you know, Jonathan, if you or I or Matt uh, or others, uh, even even the, the, the folks that have been on your show before talking about these things, committed an error or bad judgment or whatever, we've been members of this community. We've been participating in this community. So, you know, a little grace from the community might be expected. I've certainly put my foot in my mouth more than once, and we'll probably do it again before I leave this planet, and have had to depend on some grace from this community. But for folks like the accessibles of the world that have done nothing but suck us dry and make us look like just, you know, pissed off blind people that want to do nothing more than just sue these poor companies that are, you know, leaving us outside and putting up keep out blind people signs. That's just not right to me. And and this is why I I, I fully embrace blocking this. We will. I mean, obviously, people can install what they want. We will, as these companies start to align themselves with the needs of our community and their customers and making sure that they align, we will continue, we will start removing them from this block. Uh, but uh, we're, we're pretty adamant about this. Um, and, and I thank you again for a very balanced uh, show yesterday, uh, last week, one of the most um, balanced shows I've heard you do in the 20 years I've been listening to you. Well, thank you um, so much. Jonathan, to, to answer one of your earlier questions, the extension is not available just yet, but only because we are waiting on the Google Chrome Web Store team to approve it. 
Yeah, it should be out today. I mean, any, any, it maybe even by the time uh, folks hear this. Well, who right. knows? I, I, I suspect that it triggered manual review, and it could be Monday. <laughs> yeah, oh, fair enough. Fine. So, is this any different from me going in at the router level? and blocking those IP addresses. It's essentially doing the same thing as I understand it, but just with a simpler user interface for people who might be a bit confused about how to do that. Is that correct? Well, first of all, our block list is based on domain names rather than IP addresses because IP addresses can and do change. Yeah. Um, So there's that. Um, The other difference is in addition to blocking the overlays, the extension will send anonymous data about how many people are using the extension, how often it's being used, and the sites and overlays that are being blocked. And one of the things that we are displaying on accessibuyby.org, though there isn't really any data there yet, is the list of top websites with overlays that are being blocked. So we display the domain names of the of the website, yeah, namecheap.com or whatever. Yeah. But by the way, and, you can um you can block or you can actually stop that data collection as well in the settings. That's right. Um kudos by the way to our new member of the team here as of about a year and a half ago, David Calvo, who is uh my son and uh, is heading up our machine learning uh efforts. He got frustrated with this thing and, and, and wrote it in a couple of days. Very good. So in a way, then, it's actually a way to contribute to the debate or the, the data, because then presumably people can say to these companies, hey, have a look, your name is sort of displayed on the, the wall of shame, as it were, as <laughs> a company. We're not, that- we're not specifically calling it a wall of shame, because we, we realize that the businesses that are using the overlays don't necessarily know any better, so they don't deserve to be shamed. But yes, that is kind of what it is. Interesting concept. Now, this is a Chrome extension, and that means, I presume, that it's going to work with all Chromium browsers, including the new Microsoft Edge, right? Yes. Absolutely. Are you thinking of a Firefox extension for those who are using that? This should be compatible. Since since Firefox adopted the Chrome uh, web extensions API a few years ago, Uh this should be compatible with Firefox. We'd just have to put in a little extra work to submit it to the Mozilla app. You know, bring it to David's attention. But by the way, we we want to be clear. This is not, while Accessibility is the latest company that we're angry about, and, and one of the things I'm personally most angry about is that they had the audacity to go out and pull what I call pull a Moses with Michael Hinkson. Michael Hinkson is a straight up awesome dude who's been around this community for years. And for them to go and basically hire him and say, hey, Moses, go talk to your people and chill them the hell out is exactly what they did. Um, there are no blind people in leadership in that company that I know of. Um, well, would Michael, you not call a chief vision officer a leadership role? Yeah, whatever. You know, yeah. Okay, when was the last time? You it's said a that, fancy that? sounding title, but it's not actual leadership. And, and it's and and I find it to be patronizing. The only reason it's not patronizing is because Michael thought of it. Um, but, um, but no, it's not a management position. All he is, is an advisory position where he says, Hey, you really tick people off when you did such and such and did this and that. That's it. So make a change. Are you sure, Michael? Just tell him it's coming. And that's not what we expect as a community. We certainly, as a company, Numa believes 
in augmented uh, remediation of media, uh, machine-assisted remediation of media. And we are developing a platform and have been for a couple of years now. And we you know what we do, Jonathan? We actually go to the community we're going to serve, man. Imagine that. And ask for and not only that, we are part of the community ourselves. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're obvious, doing, obviously, we don't presume to speak for the whole community, but you know, we are blind, or in my case, low vision people. So, so uh, that but, combined but, with the fact that we elitist. go to the <laughs> <laughs> so that's accessi bye bye dot org all joined together, and you expect that to be live anytime. Yeah, the website is live now, and you can go and take a peek at it. Unfortunately, the and, and there's a blog post going to be available on numasolutions.com. And because we're blind and we wanted to be funny, we spelled Numa with a P. So it's P-N-E-U-M-A solutions.com. And uh, you can visit there and, and read a blog post that uh, Matt and I put out um, about this entire situation. Uh, we are not fighting accessibility. We are fighting an industry of creating overlays uh, of which accessibility is just the latest offender that we've that's come into our community's radar. By the way, Mike, you say I'm diplomatic, but I am capable of ranting. Several months ago, <laughs> several months ago, one of my one of my sighted friends uh, drew my attention to UserWay, which is another one of these accessibility overlays, and and uh, asked me what I thought of it, and I I emailed him a good rant. On on <laughs> on what I felt to be wrong with with userway, so I might uh, I might forward that to you guys just so you can see it. But yeah. well, I think what we can be clear about from last week's episode is that there are people who genuinely are having additional difficulties because yeah. of these accessibility <laughs> overlays, and there's no denying that. And so, for people who perhaps want to get back to being able to use sites that they could once use before. This could be a lifesaver. It's easy to implement. And that added advantage of collecting data from the community that could potentially be passed on. So that's accessibuybuy.org from numerous solutions. And the website's live. The extension should be live shortly, working with pretty much every modern browser. So thank you both for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate that. Thank you. We thank appreciate you. it as well. Hello, Jonathan. This is Roger Peterson. I used the Brannon slate and the Cuba Rhythm slate at the Idaho School for the Deaf and Blind way back in the 50s. And uh, in terms of mathematical access, I want to mention that I was very lucky before this person's death to have a chance to meet him. That was kind of the ultimate blind mathematician, Abraham Nemeth. And he seemed to have been most proud of the uh, skill that he learned as a to be a mathematics professor to write on the blackboard. And he says he accomplished that, and it stood him in good stead. What a guy. And he also played the piano and told weird jokes. Um, now, on the matter of dating, I wanted to mention to you, number one, that I, I have had a uh, one-sided partner and one totally blind partner, and now my current partner who is uh, low vision. And uh, I'm totally blind and have been from birth. And my experience has been that the way you find partners is to be in groups, rather you know, rather stable groups, not 
not groups that come together and go apart again in, on one night. So the organizations of the blind, for example, for finding other blind people are the best way. I found my two, my second and third partners in that way. My first partner was in class with me in college. And uh, it was an odd kind of thing. We were in German class talking about ourselves, and it turned out that we knew a bassoonist in common. I knew her as a club owner, and my prospective spouse knew her as her bassoon teacher. Also, in terms of dating, I want to mention that uh, there is the possibility that the sighted person can have can be a person who has a need to be a caregiver or whatever. And uh, I remember a bunch of us who were blind men with sighted wives were talking, and we found out that all of our wives were either social workers or nurses or uh, I think librarians was another one that some of them were. But it seemed as though the wives were we're in sort of helping professions. Interesting. Thanks very much, Roger. And good to get your Abraham Nemeth recollections as well. I had the privilege of interviewing him for a Blind Line documentary on UEB that I was doing. And it was great to talk to the legend. You know, we grew up studying maths in Nemeth. And then when you grow up, you realize, oh, Nemeth is actually a person. That was pretty cool. I wonder if Banner spells Nemeth. With an uppercase N, I actually ask the question legitimately. I don't know the answer to that. Back to the subject of dating when blind and Andy is responding to one of the anonymous emails uh, to identify it. I will just say it's the one where everything was numbered all the way down to the decimals. (laughs) This person's email, says Andy, assumes a lot. You have already covered much of what I would have said on the subject. My sighted wife of 20 years and I both just do what we can to take care of each other. Incidentally, as I listen to this, I am dusting, and she is listening to an audio book on my Victor Reader. Hello, Jonathan. It's Gary. Um, just on the subject of uh, dating, uh, I have only ever dated one blind lady in my life before, and it did have its advantages, but it, it was also challenging to a certain extent. Um, advantages being... There's a certain understanding with a lot of blind techie stuff and little things like listening to narrated movies. All the sighted girlfriends and my wife, who is sighted, you introduce them to narrated movies, for example, or, or even audiobooks, and um, they they fascinated with it. They they're really fascinated, but they battle to follow it, and they they seem to lose concentration in. A short amount of time because they're so used to reading or watching. Um, that is where someone who's blind you you can you can fill each other with that. And uh, but there are also um, disadvantages. Transport was quite an issue with the work that I do. Being a entertainer, you've got a lot of musical equipment and things to move around. You can't just take your dog's harness or your cane and say, right, I'm going to go off to work on my own. I will see you later. Uh, you need someone to drive you around for things like that. I mean, going to the shop is no problem. You just go want to buy a loaf of bread, you catch your Uber, you take your dog, that's no problem. I think also there's a lot to be said with how you handle yourself when trying to date someone that's sighted who's never encla- who's never encountered someone who's blind before. I'm very lucky in the sense that I was brought up in a sighted world, so I was brought up as a as near to a sighted person as possible, where 
my parents would let me do things such as ride a bicycle, swim, climb trees, do whatever I needed to do, get hurt sometimes, yes, but they let me be a normal in brackets or a, a regular person as possible. Whereas I, I've seen other blind people, the social skills is not good, and they move around in their own flat or their own apartment using their legs to follow the couch and moving sideways. Social skills are, are not good. And most sighted people tend to avoid that person because it looks totally strange in a sighted world and it's it's actually very, very sad. So my wife and myself get on very well. There there was one or two little things that we tried to put on the cover of the pool, for example, and she would say, tilt it that way. And I, I tilt it the wrong way. And then there's a little bit of frustration and a little bit of communication problems and that. But generally there's no there's no problems. And she did say to me one day, and I was quite shocked by this, but she did say to me, if I was less independent or less adequate to do things, she might not have gone for me, you know, um, which which kind of surprised me because it it just sounded strange. She knows that I can't see, and I didn't think there would be any sort of issue whatsoever. Um, so there is something to be said for independence and managing to do things such as cooking or doing the washing and, you know, even just trying to fix something around the house. I'm fortunate enough to be able to do a lot, lot of those things to a certain point. And yes, if I do need help, I can say, lend me your eyes and off we go. There's there's no issue. Then there's things that she needs a hand with and she asks me for help and I do it. So I think there's a very big case of 50-50 and give and take. As far as online dating, I've never dated online. Everybody that I've dated, I have met face to face and it's taken from there and you have a good conversation. And um, I find humor is a very, very good attraction if i can put it like that because um i will say silly things like can i take you on a blind date i mean that's how i won my wife over in the first conversation she laughed and she thought it was cute and that's when we started talking so i I find that confidence humor and putting the sighted person at ease um, makes things a lot easier there was a friend of mine who tried online dating as a blind person and he started talking to a lady And within the first few sentences, he said to me that he told the lady, look, I am blind. And she didn't even continue to have any conversation further. She didn't say I'm not interested or didn't greet him. She just went offline, never spoke to him again. And I actually thought that was pretty lousy. If you don't want to take the time to get to know someone, just say, all right, listen, I'm not interested and move on. Um, And as so I said to him, which is exactly what one of your previous listeners said, if she didn't give you the time of day, then she's not worth it. So I would, if I did online dating, I would definitely in the beginning say, look, I can't see. That is, and then if you want to ask me questions, I'm an open book. Say whatever you like. Ask me whatever you like. I'll be more than, because I love showing people, I don't want to say brag, but I love showing people what I can do and what I can't do because there's always all the stereotypical things like do you count steps when you walk and and all these silly questions so I'm always very upfront with that sort of thing and it's worked for me so far and my wife and myself get on very well Um, there's never any issues about sight or non-sight even when amongst our circle of friends I'm, I'm not seen as the odd one out or the blindy of the group I'm seen as just one of the crowd which is fantastic uh, sometimes Rihanna will say to me 
I forget that you're blind or she'll be eating a packet of chips and she'll just hold out the packet and then I don't take anything because I don't know that she's holding it out for me because she forgets. And I think that is that is one of the biggest compliments for me. Julie McCullough says, at the time I tried online dating, you could say that I had two strikes against me. I am blind and at the time I was serving churches in a pastor in an appointive system in which pastors are assigned to churches within a particular region. This in itself is an insecure situation for many men. I tried online dating at the persistent recommendation of my conference's therapist. I had been in a relationship that had fallen apart when the man with whom I was involved started seeing my assistant, moved in with her, and eventually married her. I was uneasy about my therapist's recommendation because I felt that no matter why the relationship fell apart, it would not be wise for me to jump quickly from one relationship to another. Nevertheless, my therapist thought I should try it, and she said that if something were to happen to my mother, my mother surely wouldn't want me to be alone. She had no idea what my mother would have wanted. I think my mother would rather have had me be alone than to be with someone who she would feel wasn't right for me. At the time I did this, my mother was still very much alive. Against my better judgment, I did it because I was very depressed at the time. I was afraid that my therapist would make a report to the Board of Ordained Ministry and say that I was non-compliant to her recommendation. I applied to eHarmony because it was thought to be the most reputable online dating service of the time. It probably also asked the most questions. As I attempted to fill out the information, I kept getting timed out and would have to start over. It took all day for me to get it filled out. I finally got it done, and I received communication from a man who came to one of my church services, and we had lunch afterward. He was very nice, but I thought of him as something of a collector of people. I would have seen him again, but we weren't in touch much after we met. I also talked some with a man who I think was from one of the Carolinas, but we never met. From other more personal experiences, some of the sighted men who seemed to be the most outgoing towards me seemed to have an odd combination of curiosity and feeling that they could have power over me. In other words, they seemed to have a screw loose somewhere. And Julie goes on to say that she ended up having a committed relationship with someone who has uh, sadly now died and is in a new relationship. Neither of those relationships came about online. So it sounds like the good old-fashioned way of just somehow waiting for something to happen has worked out for Julie. Thanks so much, Julie. It's good to hear from you. Hey, Jonathan. It's Mike Fair. Interesting show. I like the perspectives on dating and relationships. That's been fascinating. I do kind of wonder at the, the drastic change inflicted on us by this pandemic. I guess you in New Zealand opened up. Uh, you weren't in lockdown for as long as as we've been. You know, we've been constantly in a state of, of staying home, of uh, not, uh, you know, not supposed to be gathering uh, with anyone who you absolutely don't have to. So anyone who's looking for new friends, new uh, anything, love, is it's, it's really been uh, almost an impossible need to, uh, to fill other than, you know, of course, online. But we all get 
you know, people are so Zoom fatigued. And then, of course, when we come out of the pandemic uh, and this lockdown is behind us and hopefully for good, uh, then there's a the question of what's left. Because, of course, a lot of the businesses that have that thrive on on numbers of people gathering in smaller spaces have been basically wiped off the map. And uh, what's going to be left? Where, where are friends and lovers supposed to go, uh, you know, at least for the first while? I've gotten a book, uh, Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships by Robin Dunbar. He was the guy who figured out that we were evolutionarily programmed to basically relate to and, and keep track of something like 150 people at a time in terms of real solid relationships. And that's, that's kind of a, not exactly a hard limit, but something close to, to it, uh, that sort of keeping track of acquaintances, then there are kind of levels of that. There are the close friends, there are the, the acquaintances that we see, sort of maybe talk to reasonably regularly, uh, and it kind of goes out from there. So apparently the close-in friends and family are going to be fine, according to what this guy's thinking. But the the farther out, like the acquaint, the second level of acquaintances beyond the first, say, 20 or, uh, you know, 50, you're starting to get into that level where there is going to be uh, a lot of, of widespread loss of, uh, of relationship there. So uh, that'll be interesting to see as a society how we sort of cope, how we bounce back from this. And I'd hate to think it's it's been a one-way trip and that it, it's it's just always going to be more a more sort of cautious, more defensive uh, society from here on out. Uh, but uh, I guess that is a danger. I, I, I kind of wonder how much compassion we've lost, how much empathy we've lost in our efforts to, uh, to protect us from, from COVID. Thanks, Mike. You talk about Zoom fatigue, and I was reading an interesting article about Zoom fatigue the other day, and every single criterion that they outlined for Zoom fatigue was visual. So I wonder whether blind people get the Zoom fatigue thing. I certainly don't. And when it first came up, I kind of thought, what the heck are people talking about? But it does seem to be a very visual thing. And I don't think the pendulum will ever swing fully back here, where we're basically back to normal most of the time. What I'm seeing is a reluctance of people to get on planes, take all that time in airports, which are never very pleasant places, spend all that time flying to a venue, having a meeting, getting back on the plane and going home. What people want now is a better quality of life. And they know, having become used to the technology, that they can be just as effective on a Zoom or a Teams meeting without all of that travel, without the unnecessary expense. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with conferences in the future too. Things like the blindness consumer conventions in the United States. Not long ago, I attended the PodFest conference, which was held virtually, that I would never have considered going to if it was in the US where it usually is physically. The world's opened up. And I think people have become quite happy a lot of the time to do these things virtually. And as somebody who lives in New Zealand, so geography is a factor sometimes with things I want to go to as someone with a hearing impairment, you know, I'm always thinking there's a silver lining to these things. And if one of those silver linings is that we're all a bit more embracing of virtuality, then that's rocking. Hey, Jonathan, Scott Davert checking in. It was about six years ago now, I 
did some research, or was asked to do some research by a university here in New York to find out what the impact of having a disability would have on the online dating world. And I already had my ideas about what that would be, but I went ahead and decided to take this seriously. Well, the study ended up falling through because one of the students that was involved didn't do her part, and I didn't feel like picking up the slack. But they gave me funding to get premium memberships on Match, and there were a couple of others. So what I did was I created a profile, and I had a couple of pictures up there. And those pictures did not have the fact that I was someone with a disability as part of them. Uh, One of the pictures, for example, I was hiking in Colorado the year before, and I had that picture taken, thinking that something like that might eventually happen. Anyway, I had that picture taken, and I did not have my cane in my hand. I did not have a note taker around my neck. I didn't have my hearing aids in. But it was a picture of me hiking on a mountain trail in Colorado. I took another picture, or had another picture taken, I should say, on that same trail in Colorado with my hearing aids in, with my braille display around my neck, and with my cane. So I put these pictures uh, with my profile that did not disclose the fact that I had a disability. I had quite a few interests, you know, several different conversations uh, through text going on. And after about five days of this, I decided... Hey, let's see what happens now if I post those pictures, which are very similar, taken in, you know, the same environment and everything. I'm going to post those now with uh, disclosing my disabilities. So I did that, and within about a day and a half, all conversations ceased and never resumed. I didn't hang around the sites too much longer. Only a couple weeks, I had like a month uh, premium membership. But once uh, the disabilities were disclosed, there was no no real response. So either you could conclude that my hearing aids and my cane and my braille display look extremely unattractive, or you could conclude, rightfully I think, that the fact that I had a disability visible in my profile contributed to me not getting very much activity uh, on the sites. And at the time, I was fairly bitter about it, really, and kind of gave up on the whole online dating thing and, and all that. But I've never been one to only date blind women or only sighted women, because I think there's a lot more there than just the disability, even in terms of interests and my interests. But I agree with your point that you may get a lot less activity, but if you don't disclose your disability right away, you're kind of getting off on the wrong foot in a lot of circumstances anyway. They might be angry that you hid your disability. Uh, There's a whole lot of different things that uh, can factor into that. And really, do you want to have to live that lie and then stress out about, you know, meeting somebody or having to tell them that this is the actual situation. I'm currently with someone who's sighted and, you know, we work through these situations really well. I live in an area where I can get to 
pretty much anything that we need to access. So if she's not able to drive, I can be a supportive partner. And I think that's the point. You have to be able to be supportive, and it doesn't really necessarily matter if you have a disability at all. Are you a good communicator? Are you someone who is willing to step in and and be just as much of a support as the other person is? I think those are more important things to look at as opposed to, you know, whether the person you're with is blind or sighted or, you know, any other uh, characteristic they may have. The other thing that I wanted to cover was <laughs> it wouldn't be a Scott Devard post if there wasn't some mention of Braille displays, right? So the Brilliant BI-40X, I have it here. One thing that you guys left out in the interview that you did with HumanWare was the C keys. The C keys are those buttons that are located to the left and right of the Braille display. And unfortunately, at this moment, they're not working in iOS uh, 14.5 beta 4. That's the latest out as of this recording. But I love those on the previous generations of Brilliance because they allow you to not only, say, do a corded command, like if you do the command keys 1, 2, and 5 together on iOS, you'll go to the home screen. Command key 4 will take you to the next item. C key 1 will take you to the previous item and so on and so forth. And if you don't want to use them for that purpose, that's fine. You can reassign those commands, anything you want. Like I said, it's not working yet in 14.5 beta 4, but I have contacted some folks in HumanWare, and they said they've already made Apple aware. The uh, other thing I wanted to say about the Brilliant BI 20 and 40X is that executive products cases will be shipping in April. And the case on the 40 is actually fairly nice. I don't think it was as terribly made as the Chameleon case. So, you know, if you want just a case and you don't need like a zipper pocket on it or anything like that, uh, the default case that comes with a brilliant BI-40X should suffice, I would think, for most folks. I certainly have no problems with it. I haven't taken it into the warm sunshine very much yet, um, but it just feels a lot more sturdy and a lot better build quality. Lovely to hear from you again, Scott. Thank you for the intel. I had a brilliant BI-20X to review, so this is the first time that I've heard of these C keys, command keys, on the brilliant BI-40X, and that sounds like a really cool thing. And while we're talking about Braille... Let's celebrate, let's rejoice. I did something that I have not been able to do for quite some time this week, and that is to curl up with an Apple book and read it on my Braille display, and that's just brilliant. iOS 14.5 Beta 4, which has now gone public as well, does have a fix for the auto-panning issues. We have heard people talking about this on the podcast in the context of Voice Dream Reader, Apple Books, Kindle, anywhere where that auto panning feature has been used, there were focus issues there, they have now been resolved. So if that is important to you, as it is for many of us who use Braille extensively, and you're not on the public beta track, it might be a good idea to get it. I was thinking that 14.5 would be out to the public possibly next week, when the rumors were suggesting that we would have an Apple event. Now it looks clear that there is not going to be an Apple event next week and that that may not happen until April sometime. So we could be waiting a bit longer, possibly, for 14.5 to go gold. 
Who knows what mysteries lurk in the heart of Apple? But if you need it now, and I can understand why you might, if you are a proficient and regular Braille user, get that 14.5 Beta 4. It is actually in pretty good shape. On Twitter, follow Mosin at Large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news, and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter. Mosin at Large Podcast. Back on the subject of maths gear, and Clinton says, Hi there, Jonathan. Just wanted to let you know that my Cranma modified abacus is still in use today. I recently started using it to keep track of the phone calls I answer at work, as my employer is currently requiring a daily total of all the various topics and questions that come up in those phone calls, as well as the total number of calls. I keep the running totals on the abacus, so I don't have to have yet another window open on the computer, since there are usually 10 to 15 windows open already during the workday. With the abacus, I can keep those running totals on the abacus during the day and input the final totals on the spreadsheet at the end of the day. This means I'm not using a bunch of scratch paper or using some other phone app or computer program to keep those numbers up to date. I also don't have to worry about losing those numbers. Yeah, Clinton, don't lose that number. If the power goes off or some other technology malfunction takes place. Therefore... As you can see, sometimes old low-tech can still be useful in our high-tech world. Thanks for all your work on this podcast. Thanks, Clinton. Reminds me of that old thing by uh, (laughs) Wink Martindale. The Deck of Cards. If you've not heard this, you should check it out on your streaming music service of choice. It's about this guy who goes in to church and he gets pinged for playing cards in church. And boy, does he have some spin when he gets tried for play because he's a soldier for playing cards in church so you know you could have a similar thing for playing with your abacus in church or something or playing with your abacus at work there you go there's a parody opportunity for someone now kelly superger says hi jonathan i've been following the discussion about tools people used when learning math at school with great interest i never was a big fan of math class while growing up for various reasons primarily i think because I wasn't taught certain concepts very well. I could do addition, subtraction, etc. just fine, and basic algebra was okay, as I recall, but there were other things that I personally found pointless, such as long division. I was glad I had lots of Braille with an uppercase B paper available, as the problems I had to solve sometimes took a few pages to complete. Geometry and trigonometry, which I struggled to learn during high school, were especially complicated for me. Trigonometry was the worst. No matter how much I tried, I just couldn't get it. The other students were using graphing calculators, but there weren't any accessible ones in those days, and I'm now wondering if that would have helped. It eventually got to the point where I experienced a breakdown one night while doing my homework, Thankfully, the teacher allowed me to skip trigonometry at my parents' request. I can't exactly remember how well my Braille textbooks were for my various math classes over the years, but do remember having to use a cassette version of a textbook one year while waiting for the Braille copy to be completed. Give me Braille any day. 
As for equipment, I used and still have the Kremmer modified abacus, which I now use mostly for doing my amateur radio check-ins by pushing a bead up for each person that calls in. When I get to 52, the total number of four beads, I just clear the abacus and continue from 53 onwards. I also was able to take my Sharp EL640 talking clock slash calculator to school with me, and it's still working after all these years. It's a shame it's not a scientific calculator, as the one I eventually got in the mid to late 90s was, in my opinion anyway, a complete joke. The school did order one. Shortly after I began high school, I forget the model number, but quickly dismissed it as not having certain features. They were also rather hesitant to let me try it, but I eventually was able to hear what it sounded like. The voice was recorded, not synthesized, and the guy that did it didn't sound too happy from what I remember. The one I got afterwards was a Texas Instruments TI-66 scientific calculator that had been modified by a company called CapTech, The actual calculator was mounted on a large-ish device that contained the speech chip, volume control, speaker, and jacks for headphones and the AC adapter. Now for why I think it was a joke. Unlike the one the school ended up returning, none of the keys on the TI-66 spoke when pressed. You practically had to have the cassette manual, more of a tutorial really, at hand to know what button did what. When you did a calculation, you then had to press one of the buttons that had been programmed to make the synthesized voice read the answer on the screen. However, this button's program could be erased, as I found out soon after. CapTech did tell me how to reprogram the button, but I decided not to once I found out what the actual command was. You just had to press one of the function buttons, followed by the decimal point. I wasn't the least bit sorry to get rid of that calculator years later. It's a shame the iPhone wasn't around when I was in school, as, these days, there are lots of calculator apps to choose from. In addition to the iPhone's built-in calculator, I also recommend the Talking Scientific and Statistical Calculators by Adam Croser, which can use either VoiceOver or your own recorded voice for the output, and PC Calc, which is also available as a free version that can be added onto via in-app purchases, depending on your needs. As for Windows 10, I've been having fun using its calculator, which I hadn't explored much before the pandemic. It was late last year when I discovered, to my delight, that it also includes a variety of converters for things like time, temperature, and length. There's even a currency converter, which I regularly use when ordering things. I'm now wondering if there are any free, preferably, and accessible online courses for brushing up on math skills. Hello, Victor. Victor says, I can't seem to find the answer to this question anywhere and wonder if you have come across a solution. When using the Mantis Q40 in terminal mode, I cannot seem to invoke the insert key with JAWS. Insert should be function plus F9, but that does not work. 
I should also mention that this would be an extremely awkward key combination to execute with a third key to perform a JAWS command. I know that I can choose Laptop Layout to use the Caps Lock as my JAWS key, but is there another way to assign Insert to another key on the Mantis? I find the lack of a dedicated Insert key is a design flaw in my opinion, and would much rather have their delete be buried behind a function key instead. Anyway, is Caps Lock my only option when using the Mantis and wanting to perform screen reading commands, or do I have other options? Thank you. Well, thank you, Victor. I have recommended for years, and I know Eric Damry has as well, that even if you have a desktop keyboard, use laptop layout. And there are two reasons that I think we've been saying this over the years. One is precisely for this reason, that if you find yourself on a laptop keyboard that has some constraints, the commands are going to be muscle memory. But second, even when you're using a keyboard that has the number pad, laptop layout is just so much more efficient because you keep your hands on the home row. So even if you found another way to press the insert key, because you don't have a number pad, you're still not going to be able to do insert with the numpad up arrow for current line or any of those commands. So it seems to me that in the case of a device like the Mantis, then the answer is to get familiar with laptop layout and just use it on all your devices. Obviously, it'll make you think for a wee while, but the commands are very logically structured and it won't take you too long before that is second nature. Now, if you really want to remap the insert key, then there are ways to do that. Microsoft now has its own Windows Power toy that will do this, although it's not the most intuitive thing from a screen reader user's perspective, in my opinion. Probably the best option you have is Sharp Keys, which is a free utility that you can install, and then you can map keys to your heart's content. What would you map? You could possibly map the tilde key to the insert key. But it's so close to the caps lock key, if you're going to do that, well, you may as well just use the caps lock key. You could, though, use the right-hand control key or the right-hand alt key if you don't use those. I actually never do. For whatever reason, I always push the left control and the left alt. So if you consider either of those keys on the right optional keys that you don't really use, then map one of them to the insert key using sharp keys, and then you will be up and running. But I would still recommend giving the laptop layout a try. While we're talking, the Mantis, Dawn Davis says, I updated my Mantis Q40 yesterday, but couldn't find any notes or other material to tell me what the update contained or what had changed. I'm just wondering whether you can give me any assistance. Sure, Dawn, I think there are some new languages added. They did post some email to the Mantis Chameleon email list. And if you are a Mantis or Chameleon user or thinking of becoming one, I highly recommend subscribing to that. It's pretty low traffic, but you do get information from APH when they drop a new update and any help that you might need. They're very helpful, the APH team on that list. They also mentioned that Bluetooth pairing should be a little bit more robust now, so that's always a good thing as well. The big one for me is that like the Brilliant, all the connections are now on one menu. So in the previous version of the update, you would have USB and then you'd have to go into a Bluetooth connections submenu, which just created what in my mind was always an unnecessary layer. So people will have heard me going on, going on like Jonathan does all the time, going on about 
how inefficient it is to switch from one connection to another, particularly from a USB to a Bluetooth connection. And it is better now that they're on the one menu. It's not as good as I would like it, because what I would still like is the ability to not have to press enter when you're executing a command. So if there's only one device in a list that begins with a certain letter, you would press that letter and voila, that's actual French I'm speaking there. Voila, you would be in the connection. That'd be good. Other than that, minor bug fixes from memory, I think, Dawn. Rachel Graff writes, Hi, Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for the amazing demo and review you did of the Mantis Q40. As an avid Braille with an uppercase B user and someone who prefers to type rather than Braille, I have been keenly interested in knowing more about this product. I currently have a Braille Note Apex with a QWERTY keyboard, but just heard that support for it is ending shortly, so I may be in the market for a new display. I have a quick question for you, read the Mantis, which I hope you'll be open to answering. Well, for only twice my normal fee, Rachel, since it's you. Is it possible, she says, to read BRF files in the book reader? I have an SD card full of books from Bard and Bookshare that are mostly in the BRF format, and I'd want to be able to read those on the Mantis. Is it possible to do this, or would they need to be converted to DAISY format? Thanks again for an extremely informative and professional-sounding review and demo. I appreciate it so much. Well, thank you for your lovely email, Rachel. It's always nice to get an appreciative email to know that you know something you've worked on hard is appreciated, so I, I'm very grateful for it. Thank you. The good news for you is, yes, you can definitely read BRF files in the book reader in the Mantis. What I would recommend to you, though, is if navigation is important in any of these books, and if it's just fiction, then the answer is it's probably not. You're going to read books like that from cover to cover, aren't you? But if you, by chance, ever look at reference books or recipe books, anything like that, I would re-download from Bookshare in DAISY format. The reason for that is that the navigation is fantastic with DAISY files in the book reader in the Mantis. They've done a good job of implementing DAISY navigation. So if you have to zap around the book to get to different sections, it's going to be a snap. But yep, no problem with the BRF files. And the next email, I am not sure who it's from because the email address is popping up in the from field, but no name. However, I think it's a last name, Dravant, that I'm seeing in the email. And the email says, Dear Jonathan, I am a regular listener to your Saturday afternoon show. And if I'm not around, the podcast. Thank you so much for your contribution to the blindness community. You do so much to help us better use the access technology that is vital to employment, education, and participation in the community. Thank you so much. Last Saturday, someone wrote into your show about a problem they were having with how JAWS sounded on their new Dell computer with headphones plugged in. I think I actually have the same Dell computer you have, but only the 13-inch model. Anyway, I had the same problem as the other listener. JAWS sounded strange whenever I plugged in earphones through the earphone jack. It drove me crazy. Like him... I looked around in the various settings, trying to see what to change. No luck. The very morning of your show, I had posted to one of the blindness listservs to see if someone else had the problem. Well, that very afternoon, you addressed the issue. Wow, how serendipitous is this? Serendipitous. Jaws now sounds normal when I plug in headphones by the headphone jack. 
and I no longer cringe when I have to use headphones. I am primarily a speech user, but don't know what I'd do without Braille, with an uppercase B. I know there has been considerable discussion on using a Braille note-taker versus a standalone Braille display with a computer or iPhone. Last month, I finally got a Mantis Q40 and love it. I prefer typing on a QWERTY keyboard over a Braille keyboard. I can simply drop my hands down to the Braille display to check what I typed and quickly return to typing. I don't have to worry about using the layered keystrokes for use of the function keys either. Back in the 90s, I owned an Alva 340, which allowed the user to sit the keyboard on top of the display just behind the cursor routing keys. This meant that you could just type and drop your fingers down to the Braille when you needed to look at the keyboard. Using the Mantis gives you a similar ability. The only file type I think the Mantis is missing is the accessible PDF files. HIMSS seems to be the only notes taker on the market that can handle this file type. I don't think I'll ever buy another traditional note taker. I can check email and go on the internet using my laptop or iPhone using speech. Given Apple's inconsistence in the Braille area, I don't want to rely solely on just a Braille display connected to my iPhone or iPad. There are many users whose only option is Braille. I wish Apple would open up a bit and work with and listen to various organizations to make sure that Braille is a priority when it comes to blind users. I need a way to read most books, even when Apple breaks something in voiceover. Also, when you connect a Braille display to read books or take notes, it seems that you are burning two batteries. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. I must say, I've changed my mind a bit on this issue. You will recall that on this podcast, you're right, we have talked about Braille displays and using them with an iPhone, but I've come to the same conclusion you have. The fact is that Apple's stuff is just too unreliable to depend on, particularly in the Braille area. Things keep being broken. And if you rely on Braille to get your job done, to perhaps perform in a meeting situation where you might need to unlock your iPhone and have it work instantly, the 14.4 issue is a really serious issue, and that is the current released build. So people whose Braille devices are affected by this and who haven't got on the beta track for good reason, are still suffering with this bug. And people who aren't affected by it either because their device is still working fine or they don't rely on Braille in the way that some of us do can show a discompassionate approach and be smug about the fact that Apple will fix it one day. That's not good enough when you are reliant on this stuff to get your job done. So maybe the note taker hasn't had its day until Apple get its soup together regarding Braille or... You might need to use a laptop with your Braille display more often than your phone if you're really reliant on this stuff. This is again where I agree with you. The Mantis has just been a wonderful innovation in my life. The fact that I can connect it to my laptop or my phone and actually connect it to both of those things and switch between them seamlessly and be able to just type without complex commands to remember, it really is a game changer. Fully agree with you regarding PDF files as well. I would add one more file type to that list that I think is essential for a device like this, and that's EPUB files. If we could have those, I'd be really happy because a lot of book repositories, 
particularly those that pride themselves on offering unencrypted content, do use EPUB. And there's a lot of navigation information that's stored in those files. So it's really easy to zap around to a chapter or a particular page or whatever your requirement is. Thank you for your views and for your very kind comments. While we're talking about things Braille, here's Will Lomas, who says, Hello, I am writing to give my thoughts on the new Brilliant X series. I took delivery of my unit today and noted that the 19th cell of the 20 cell unit is not showing all the cells properly. So an L looks like a K. Has anyone else noticed this? Uh, No, Will, I didn't notice that when I had one, but I can tell you that sounds like a defect and I would definitely call Humanware support about this. The first thing to do, remember that there are lots of moving parts in Braille displays, and gunge can get in them, although you would hope that you would get a Braille display that was gunge-free when it arrived out of the box. But you should follow Humanware's procedures that I'm sure are in the manual or on their website or that support can talk you through for cleaning the Braille display, and just make sure that there's not some little speck of dust or something like that that's preventing that dot two from coming up. It doesn't take much to obstruct it. So hopefully they might be able to talk you through uh, getting that fixed. Also says Will, when I press a routing key to unlock my iPhone 11, I hear the time, but no speech prompt to enter my passcode. What am I doing wrong? I think you have to swipe up from the bottom to get to the password screen. Well, I think that's the trick there. But good luck with your hardware issue. I hope that can be easily resolved. And Liel from Israel has been in touch. And he says that when he uses JAWS sometimes with his computer connected to USB, sometimes his braille display just stops responding. It locks up. And the only thing he can do is unplug it from the USB and plug it back in again. Now, I don't know, you didn't say, Liel, what Braille display you have, but I have definitely seen this with a Focus 40 Blue. In the days when I would go into our national office and I'd have this docking station thing and my laptop and the whole shebang, I would sometimes connect the Focus and be working away and it would just stop responding, like you say. And I thought initially that it might be to do with a firmware upgrade that I did to the Focus, so I downgraded again. I got the old firmware file and I downgraded and it didn't help. It seems to be related to certain USB ports in my experience. So Liel, if you can get back to me and let me know what Braille display you have, that would be interesting. Because if it's a Focus, it would suggest there may be something going on there with that particular display. If it's not a focus, then it could be a JAWS driver issue. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Hey, Jonathan, it's Debbie Armstrong, and I have a gripe about Clubhouse. I am not interested in growing my business. I have a perfectly good full-time job. I don't want to start a business. I don't want to build my brand. I don't care about marketing secrets. And I'm not interested in becoming an influencer or creating a podcast. But I do follow influencers, podcasters, people who want to build their brand. And I think that's fine. 
I may want to consume a product your business sells. I may want to become a client of a service you provide. I am certainly an audience for your podcast and many other podcasters as well. So just because I'm not a leader doesn't mean I'm not important. If, for example, everyone who listened to your podcast wanted to become an entrepreneur, they'd be too busy entrepreneuring and not listening to you. So every influencer needs an audience. Every business needs consumers. Every service provider needs clients. Why is my hallway filled with all of these crazy sessions that I'm not interested in simply because I follow people who are interested in them? I need to see rooms that are related to what I want to be, a consumer, a client, and an audience. It's a very good point you make, Debbie. Good to hear from you again, by the way. And I think there are several things going on concurrently, simultaneously, and at the same time. (laughs) Uh, There's a culture about Clubhouse that has emerged since it began a year ago, where a lot of people from Silicon Valley, influencers, were given invitations first. So what you're seeing is quite an established culture of the sort of, you know, build your brand influence, get rich quick, you know, Bitcoin's on there. I think that culture will probably change as the platform goes more mainstream. Eventually, they'll move away from invitation only. Eventually, they will get an Android app. And so you will see that culture change. So it does come down to who you follow. But I do agree with you. That's why we have set up a Mushroom FM club on Clubhouse. And if you are interested in any Mushroom FM shows, including this one, that club is for consumers, if you will, listeners to our content. It's not about how to start your own internet radio station. It's about connect with Mushroom FM fun guys that you might hear on the radio and get to speak with them and get to know them. And I do hear a bit more of that starting to happen now. So, you know, if people are too spammy about the grow your brand and stuff like that and it doesn't interest you, then you can unfollow them, I guess. But you make a really good point that people may be losing potential followers based on the content that they create. So in my case, we do have quite a successful wee club on Clubhouse called The Blind Podmaker, which is designed for people who want to make or who are currently making podcasts to share ideas. But I am also a part of other things that are more about just consumption. And I do notice that because blind people have been using these audio things for a long time, they are tending to just do generic chats, which I must admit, just as a busy person, I'm not really interested in just hanging out and shooting the breeze without a purpose. I do find it helpful to create rooms that have a clear focus, even when that focus is consumption. But in the end, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Clubhouse will be what you want it to be based on what you create and who you follow. It will be very interesting to see what kind of a different culture Twitter Spaces has when it officially launches and comes out of beta. Hello, friends. This is Mickey Quinzer. I have a quick question for everybody today. I have a friend who has her father's funeral service on Facebook Live. She wants me to take that file and make it into an MP3 file. I understand how to do that, but what I don't understand is how to actually get to the file and save it locally on my computer. Is there anybody who could help me with that? Thanks. 
Oh boy, looks like Soup Drinker is coming to a home near Pater because he writes, Hi Jonathan, I'm planning to buy an Amazon Echo Dot. This will be my first smart speaker. My questions are, one, do I understand right that settings are only available through the Amazon app running on smartphones? There's no way to handle it on a regular PC in a browser. Uh, no, Peter, uh, that is not the case. You can point your browser to alexa.amazon.com and log in and not only set your device, but also maintain settings. I think it is fair to say, though, that if you go beyond the basics of setting it up and doing a few things, there are probably some tasks that could be smartphone specific. For obvious reasons, I don't use the browser interface very much, but I have and it still does exist. So you should be okay if you don't have a smartphone that can run the app. Two, if that's the case, which I've just said it is not, is the Amazon app accessible with TalkBack on Android? My Android version is 5.1.1. My phone is a Samsung Galaxy J3 2016. I know you use iPhone, but maybe you still know the answer. Well, I don't know the answer definitively, and that is quite an old phone, Peter, but what I can say is I haven't seen anyone on the social media chastising and castigating Amazon for not making their Android app accessible, so I'm assuming that it is. But if there are Android users who would care to comment on the accessibility of the Amazon app, that would be a great service to us all. And three, when unpackaging and setting up my Amazon Echo Dot Will I need some sighted help? I am completely blind. It is unlikely that you will need sighted help, Peter, if you're comfortable with setting up new gadgets. The process is accessible. So if you do need additional help, it's unlikely to be because you've hit an accessibility brick wall. It could just be because you're doing something new and unfamiliar, and that's perfectly fine. But the process is accessible, and I have actually set up an Amazon Echo some time ago now, to be fair. It might be two or three years ago, so I can't comment on the 2021 experience with any authority. But when I did this, I was able to set up an Amazon Echo in someone's house with nothing but a web browser. So it's going to ask you to connect to a Wi-Fi network that the Amazon Echo will create to complete the setup and then help you to join your regular Wi-Fi network and you can do all of that in Windows, and the process did seem to be okay. But my experience is a little old now, but I've not heard that it has changed. Best of luck, and when you get it up and running, let us know how you get on. Hi, Jonathan. It's Brian here. In Mothin at Large last week, you mentioned about the English being a bit reticent about showing their phones in public. Well, I think this probably stems from a story that we've had quite a lot and that basically revolves around the stealing of mobile phones when they're out in the open the way that the gang usually operates is that they've got a moped somewhere there's usually two of them at least one will go around looking at people unlocking their phones with the keys as it were in other words putting in the pin number or whatever 
and they will target these people when they next take their phone out. And what happens is one's on the back of the moped and the other's on the front. And they're quite quiet mopeds and they come along behind the person while they're on the phone, reach over, grab the phone and then ride off up an alleyway somewhere. And this has happened quite a lot. In fact, the police have been have put out warnings about them and have tried to tackle them. This seems to mainly happen in areas where there are lots of alleyways and lots of back doubles and little back alleys to houses and shops. So consequently, with all this publicity, I suspect a lot of people have been frightened. Also, of course, it does seem a very difficult thing to do when you're blind because nobody really is watching out for you, are they? Except for yourself and you can't see. It's a bit like trying to use the cash machine on your own when you're out because obviously people can be watching over your shoulder to see what pin number you put in and you wouldn't know. I think that's where this comes from. Myself, I don't use my phone very much for navigating outside. If I do, then I tend to use it when I'm out in the country somewhere because then there's nobody about. So that's what I think the problem is. There may be others with other views, I don't know, but I wonder if this is different in other countries. Maybe they don't have the moped thieves that we have here. It always reminds me a bit about the old um, Oliver Twist story, you know, with Fagin running all these kids. And these these youths are usually quite young on stolen mopeds with no indication of what the number was. You know, and they're obviously taking these things back to somebody who's giving them money so they can buy their drugs or whatever. That's the way I see it anyway. That seems to be the way that it's put forward on the news that I listen to. Ah. Oliver Twist. You got a pick a pocket or two, Brian. You got a pick a pocket or two, Brian. Or perhaps Monty Python put it best when they said, Don't take it out in public or they will stick you in the dock and you won't come back. Yeah, I think it was the phone they were talking about, wasn't it? Jonathan Mosin. We're saying hi to Ed McDonald. He says, hello, Jonathan. My wife, Karen, and I have been regular listeners since stumbling upon your return to the podcast world several months ago. I am often a few episodes behind, but eventually listen to nearly everything. Well, thank you, Ed and Karen. You and I have communicated by email a few times over the years, and Karen met you briefly at an NFB convention a decade or so ago when she bought a Packmate Although I am notoriously slow to embrace new technology, both of us have recently acquired mantises. Is that the plural of mantis? Or is the plural of mantis manti? <laughs> anyway, it says, and I am using mine to write this message. Oh, it's coming up beautiful, Ed. Beautiful. That means I am, he says, for the first time, using a combination of speech and braille, with an uppercase B, on a Windows PC. I have worked for nearly 50 years in most aspects of broadcasting, mostly in public radio. In, quotes retirement, unquote, I became the founder and manager, actually pretty much the entire staff, of an LPFM station in Kesa, Kesa maybe, West Virginia, WKYWLP. I love those American call signs. AKA Mountain Streams Radio. The station offers a totally automated format of folk and traditional music 
with an emphasis on local and regional artists. I am, of course, using Station Playlist, thanks to the Broadcast It tutorial. After four years of operating as little more than a jukebox with a few local PSAs, the station is now in a position to move to the proverbial next level. The local tourism office is taking over the licence currently held by the County Historical Society and we are at last preparing to launch an online stream. I am also planning to launch a modest amount of voice tracking and we will be recruiting additional volunteers to host some of our programme schedule. In preparation for these improvements, we have secured funding around $2,500 to build and set up a new automation computer. With that in mind, I was interested in your comment on a recent episode that your son-in-law had built a new machine to run Mushroom FM. If such documentation is available, I would be interested in seeing the specifications. We certainly want to equip the new machine with a robust processor and plenty of RAM, but I am particularly interested in making appropriate choices for storage, drives and audio interfaces. Such matters are beyond my expertise, so any guidance and suggestions are welcome. I want to use the money wisely to build a reliable and good-sounding system. Thank you, Ed. I remember fondly our correspondence on all of this, and it's great to see that the station is thriving by all accounts. So that's absolutely brilliant. And I look forward to tuning into the stream when that is available. If you are going to host your stream with a streaming hosting provider, which I would recommend you do because they can maintain the service for you and that kind of thing, really broadcasting with Station Playlist isn't hugely CPU-intensive. So if you get an i5 or an i7 processor, I would recommend 16 gigs of RAM minimum. Again, I come back to the fact that I think the RAM is really important here. You should be cooking with gas. Even the audio interface is not that important if all you are doing is voice tracking. That's because Station Playlist sends its audio through its own studio pipeline, which is all software rather than hardware. Where the hardware would be relevant is if you're going to go live and you want to connect an audio interface to a mixer and sit behind the mic in a broadcast console and do things that way. If you're going to do that, then there are many really good audio interfaces out there. Complete to a nice one called the Complete Audio 6. I'm using the Focusrite Scarlet range. I have the 8i6, which is a bit of a big kahuna, but you can get smaller Focusrite Scarlet devices. They do have some awful accessibility issues getting them set up. But once they're set up, they seem to stay set up and they're very good quality. Motu, M-O-T-U, also do some very nice and actually much more accessible audio interfaces. And there are some pretty low-cost Behringer audio interfaces. But if you're just going to be getting volunteers to voice track in their own homes and you're going to be doing it all through Station Playlist's audio pipeline then really the audio interface doesn't have to be fancy at all. You may be able to get away with the audio that's built into the motherboard. The one thing I would say is that when we built the Mushroom FM PC, we used a mechanical hard drive. And we did this because, well, it's a little bit cheaper and also because solid-state drives do have a theoretical maximum number of reads and writes. Although... In a radio station environment, it's unlikely you're going to achieve that before you do something else with your computer anyway. And we just recently replaced 
the mechanical hard drive with a solid state drive. The reason why I did that was because Station Playlist is actually pretty busy at startup. And we found that after upgrading to the latest version of Station Playlist, we were getting some very odd things where its fail-safe timer was timing out and basically starting multiple copies of itself. It's really important that Mushroom FM stay up as much as possible, and we have all sorts of means to ensure that that happens. For example, I can use the remote desktop protocol to remote into the machine if ever I need to do any maintenance, and I can sit in front of my computer anywhere in the world on my laptop, and it's as if I'm sitting in front of the computer in the studio where Mushroom FM is, and JAWS is running, and I can do everything as if I was sitting in front of the computer. We've also made sure that the computer responds to wake up over Ethernet, which means that even if you're away, if you've got the right utility, you can wake the computer up if there's a power outage and you need to start it again. And there are computers with BIOSes, by the way, that will start themselves. If they detect that they've been shut down improperly because of a power outage, when the power's restored, some of these new BIOSes are intelligent enough to restart themselves, and I would highly recommend that you get a BIOS with that capability in your new machine. But the other tool that I use that's absolutely invaluable is an iOS app called Pulseway. This consists of a little server that you install on the broadcast machine and a 100% accessible iOS app. So you run that on your iPhone, and that app is called Pulseway. And when it's set up, you can monitor the computer. You can check all sorts of things. You can check the temperature. You can check what processes are running, all from an accessible app. But also what you can do is restart it. So if something goes really seriously wrong, and this sometimes would happen, and I was on the other side of the world, I could just load that app and choose to restart the Mushroom FM PC, and it would restart. You can also now set up Siri commands for this. So I can say to Siri, restart the Mushroom FM computer, which is a command I've got set up, and it will do it. And typically I do this. You could put this on a task scheduler as well, actually, and just automate the whole thing. But typically I do this when the snowman is on live on a Saturday night US Eastern time, and he's on for three hours. And sometime during that three hours, I'll just load up Pulseway on the phone and reboot the machine because it's always good to reboot Windows uh, every so often to keep it behaving. It is not like Linux where you can run it for years and years without a reboot. So those are a few thoughts on your new PC. I wish you all the very best with it. It sounds like a great project. Dave Baker is back. Hey, Jonathan, congratulations on your 100 episodes. I appreciate your tech reviews and commentary. But so often, search, in quotes, is made synonymous with Google. Have you tried any of the alternatives? I used DuckDuckGo for years, but now switched to a new one. DuckDuckGo is good, but there's a new one, ecosia.org, and that is spelled E-C-O-S-I-A, ecosia.org. This one plants a tree for every search. It even tells you how many trees you've planted using that specific browser on your machine. I really like them. They have the same layout as DuckDuckGo mostly, but I've joined many in my community of independent artists in using Ecosia. The holdout was Safari for the longest time, but in the most recent Mac and iOS updates, it's finally included as a search engine for searches from the address bar. I really like how they've leveraged search technology with a great cause 
not just planting trees, but empowering disadvantaged communities around the world. Dave has a second point, which I'll come back to in a moment, but I should first say I have not heard of this before. And I mean, I read a lot of tech news, but I've literally not heard of it before. I have used DuckDuckGo, and I tried switching to it for a while, but what I found was that Google gave me what I was looking for so much more quickly, particularly when I was searching for New Zealand-related stuff. Google knew to prioritize New Zealand things, and DuckDuckGo did not. But this Ecosia sounds really cool, and I will check it out. Dave continues on an unrelated note. Why do people not capitalize Braille with an uppercase B? I have heard that this is some new convention, but have never been given a reason for it. We capitalize things that are named after their inventors. I cannot, for example, imagine not capitalizing Moog when referring to the 70s monophonic synthesizer largely invented by Robert Moog. Well, actually it was in the 60s because they used it on a Beatles album, Abbey Road, in 1969. So while he continues, you have the same preference that I do for capitalizing Braille after its inventor, why is this change in convention to lowercase? I've yet to hear any real explanation for why they decided that. Okay, are you ready, Dave? And anybody else interested, let's go back to 2006 for this statement from the Braille Authority of North America. And it reads, Many individuals, organizations, corporations, and government agencies have asked the Braille Authority of North America, Banner, what its policy is on the preferred capitalization style for the word Braille. Believing that the issue is a true policy matter with far-reaching implications, Banner, as the standard-setting body for Braille in the United States and Canada, is issuing a policy statement on this matter. Most agencies and organizations in the blindness field throughout the world follow the practice that does not capitalize the word Braille unless referring to the name of Louis Braille or to a proper name such as Braille and Talking Book Library, Agency, Braille and Speak, Product Name, or Braille Formats, Principles of Print to Braille Transcription, Book Title. Even though the tactile reading system was named after an individual, it does not necessarily follow that the word be capitalized. This type of word is termed an eponym, a word that comes from someone's name. Consider the words what, match, sandwich, tattersaw, foldy, wellerism, bowdlerize, spoonerism, and many others. All were once people's names or referred to a specific person. They are now just nouns and verbs spelled without a capital letter. Their lowercase status was acquired because the word has assumed such a commonplace role in the language. Braille, as the representation of the code created by Louis Braille, has become an important, recognized, and commonplace part of the landscape of life. True acceptance of Braille as a viable medium for reading, and not a special or unusual item, includes not setting it apart by writing it differently. As testament to its acceptance, it has acquired the right to appear in the language as a lowercase word. Efforts are ongoing. See, they're coming to take me away. Can you hear that? that? They don't like me reading it. They're coming to take me away. Efforts are ongoing with style manual publishers and the makers of the Microsoft Office Suite Dictionary to advise them 
that the blindness community prefers the word Braille to be represented as Braille, with a lowercase b. Position. Banner recommends that the word Braille, when referred to the code developed by Louis Braille, be written with an initial lowercase letter. When referring to the proper name of Louis Braille, the inventor of the reading system, the initial letter should be capitalized. So that is Banner's statement, and as I have said before, and written on my blog, I have a totally different view of this. You can argue the case both ways, of course. Morse code is written with a capital M, Celsius is written with a capital C. There are numerous examples of people who have invented things that are still capitalized. And in my view, remembering the sacrifices that Louis Braille made so that so many of us can read and use that gift to work and succeed in life is a matter of plain respect. The thing that really gets me about this statement is reference to the blind community. When this change sort of trickled down to New Zealand, I wasn't consulted, and I don't know of many blind people who were consulted. In fact, this is a timely reminder that the conventions are coming up of blindness organizations in the United States soon. I would love to see a resolution using classic NFB language condemning and deploring the Braille Authority of North America for doing this. I don't think that they have a mandate to say that the blind community wants this. I'm not saying it's universally accepted that Braille should have an uppercase B, but a lot of the blind people I talk to still write it with an uppercase B, are proud of the fact that Louis Braille, a blind guy, invented this code, which we should capitalize in the same way that Samuel Morse invented a code that we still do capitalize. Thank goodness no one's come out in the ham radio community and said, don't capitalize Morse. Oi. So the conventions are coming up. If you feel strongly about it and you're a member of either consumer organization, it's a chance to lobby and get it fixed. Capitalizing Braille, it's the right thing. It's the respectful thing. Like the show? Then why not like it on Facebook too? Get upcoming show announcements, useful links, and a bit of conversation. Head on over now to facebook.com slash large. That's facebook.com slash M-O-S-E-N at large to stay connected between episodes. Hi, Jonathan. I am Anil. I want to talk about a couple of things you mentioned for this week's Mosin at Large. Coming to Matt's equipment in the past, I used during my schooling a product called Tyler Slate. Here, the people called it as Tyler Frame which has holes to put pegs in various shapes by which you can use calculations. It was very, very helpful, but the process is very slow and it had its limitations like when you get a brand new Taylor slate and pegs, they are very tight fit. The plastic pegs and slate are available in the market, but they break easily. The biggest limitation is that it was hard to distinguish the difference in shapes of 
geometric pegs one more thing is that the pegs contain lead which is harmful coming to the economical scanning solution until recently i used a product called lex which is actually developed for dyslexia students but it is helpful for visually impaired persons also this is made by vision aid international i will provide their website link the good thing is that the support for this product is still available i don't know whether support for open book and curvewell 1000 is available or not but the product has various glitches with latest versions of windows like intermittently stops speaking and sometimes it does not scan pages while you press enter key etc these are small bugs but very Thank you, Anil. And I will put the full link to that software that you mentioned in the show notes. Thank you for sending it through. For those listening on the radio or who find it difficult to access the show notes, the homepage for the company that Anil mentions is www.visionaidinternational.com. And that's all joined together. www.visionaidinternational.com. Kim Paul says, I live and work in Midtown Manhattan, USA. Like you and so many of your listeners, I now require a screen reader to access technologies. And thanks to COVID and remote learning, I am mastering my first Braille with an uppercase B display, my first pair of made-for-iPhone hearing aids, and walking everywhere with my guide dog. Wow, you're living the dream, Kim. Another gift of COVID is extra time, not commuting to work, so I can explore and listen to terrific podcasts like yours. So thank you. I am reaching out to share with you and your listeners a strategy I have found greatly improves my chances of arriving at my destination on time when using ride shares. Once my request has been accepted and a vehicle is on its way, I locate the app's contact driver button and send a special text message to the driver. My message says something like, I am waiting outside of the curb. I have low vision and a beautiful yellow guide dog. I am hard of hearing. Please let me know when you arrive so I can locate your car. My reasons for each of the statements and this process, which of course we shouldn't have to use in the first place, are 1. This is a text message which I suspect can be reviewed by the rideshare company later to support the fact that I was outside and watching, which is another excuse I've been given when I contact a company after the driver pulled up, then drove away. Two, I use the word beautiful to indicate my dog is clean, another excuse I've heard used for other people but have not experienced myself. Three, I have indicated my disability and what I want the driver to do when they arrive. In some places, I may be more specific, asking the driver to honk their horn or open the door for me. An additional bonus of this method is that if the driver cancels the ride anyway, at least it happened sooner 
and a new vehicle will be on its way much sooner than waiting for it to pull up and then drive off. I hope this is helpful to you and your listeners. I deeply appreciate the variety of issues you and your listeners discuss relating to the real-world experiences encountered when living life with blindness, and for many, hearing loss too. Although technology for vision loss and hearing loss is a critical topic worthy of the attention we give it, so too are the other aspects of our lives. You are doing us all a great service. Nice to hear from you, Kim, and that is a very handy tip. I've done a similar thing, but what I do to speed it up is I have a thing called text replacements that I use that's built into the iPhone. And if anyone wants to try this, the quickest way is to ask Siri to open keyboard settings. And when you go in there, you'll find an option called text replacements. What you can do is enter a string of characters and then a much longer thing that will replace that string of characters when you type it. So, for example, I have one called UBX because I never type the letters UBX together in any other situation. And it's short for UberX. And when I type it and you have to press the space bar, it inserts something into the text message which I have open when I type UBX in the space bar like... Hi, just to let you know that I'm a blind person. I'm outside the building. I'm carrying a white cane. When you pull up, I won't see you. So if you could please get out of your vehicle and find me and bring me to your vehicle, I would really appreciate that. Thank you. And all of that is typed in by typing UBX in the space bar. I do have another one, UBB, which stands for Uber with Bonnie. And I have used this sometimes which basically says we're standing outside the building, I'm blind with a white cane, and my wife has her guide dog with her, so please look for us. I've used that sometimes, and I have had a refusal that way. But you are right, if you do get a refusal under those circumstances, you've got the record, and Uber can look back at the text message conversation and see that you've got a naughty driver. And I did have a driver who refused and said, I'm not going to take a dog in my vehicle. And I then called the driver and said, you got to, it's the law, and he still declined. And so the good thing is, as well as all the additional information, which I always copy to the clipboard, whenever an Uber is assigned to me now, I copy their information to the clipboard in case I need to make a complaint. But then that text message history also works. But that text replacement feature is very handy for building up a little repertoire of messages that you might like to send to an Uber driver. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line, it's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.